You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is For Such a Time as This, Episode 6, with Daniel Pell. Good evening and welcome to our presentation entitled The Last Tower of Babel. This is a presentation in a series entitled For Such a Time as This. And I'm again excited to open the Word of God together with you tonight and to explore together the Scriptures. And before we do so, we want to ask the Holy Spirit to be with us. And so I invite you to bow your heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity we have to open your Word together. Thank you so much for the promise that you have given us that your Holy Spirit will teach us and instruct us and guide us into your truth. We pray that your word will not return unto you void, but accomplish that in which you please. And Father, please be with me and with all those that will listen to this message. May it not be my words that are spoken, but your words that are spoken. And we thank you, Lord, that we have the prophecies that you have given to us and that we can explore them and that through your help, Lord, we can understand them for the very times in which we are living are indeed solemn times. And we thank you that you are there to prepare us for the days that are ahead of us. Thank you for your promise to be with us and guide us now as we open your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Spiritual discernment is crucial in these days that we are living in. And what we want to do tonight in our study is we want to explore the topic of the Tower of Babel. Now, many of you are familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel. We find it all the way back in the book of Genesis. We read about how shortly after the flood, the nations came together and built this huge colossal tower that towered into the heavens and how the Lord altered the plans of man and scattered them abroad. This story in the Old Testament is really a type of what is going on in these last days in which we are living. As a matter of fact, we are seeing before our very eyes a new tower being built. It's not a physical tower. It's not a tower made of stone, but it's a tower that is a figuratively tower, a tower of control, a tower that is... uh, pointing to the achievements and the pride of man and really standing in defiance of the word of God and the words of prophecy. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story of the Tower of Babel and see if we can draw some lessons from that story and see how it applies in the words of prophecy in the end of time. And I believe that we will indeed see that we are facing another Tower of Babel in the very times in which we are living. So I invite you to take your Bibles where you're going to need your Bibles tonight. It's going to be a real Bible study. And I invite you to turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to start in the book of Matthew, the first gospel book. And I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew and the 24th chapter. Matthew chapter 24 is a chapter in which Jesus preaches on last day events. He preaches about events that are going to happen shortly before he will come again the second time. And Matthew chapter 24 is the sermon of Jesus is triggered by a question that the disciples ask him. Jesus has just in the, in the previous chapter, in chapter 23, denounced a judgment upon the temple in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, Jesus predicted that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed and not one stone would be left upon the other. The disciples are absolutely amazed when they hear these words. And so they approach Jesus 
thinking that this destruction of the temple must be the very end of the world. And take notice of the question that they ask Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3. Verse 3, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? This is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, uh, Jesus, in a stroke of brilliance, unites these two concepts together. And in his sermon here in Matthew 24, he explains regarding the destruction of, Jer of Jerusalem and, and what would happen during that destruction. But more than that, he also portrays the last events on planet Earth before he comes a second time, answering basically the question of the disciples, but also using that very event as a typology of last day events. Now, in Matthew chapter 24, I want you to take notice of some of the warnings that Jesus utters in his sermon, that he utters in his teaching here. In Matthew chapter 24, take notice of the very first thing that Jesus says to the disciples in verse 4. Matthew chapter 24 and verse Four. They ask the question in verse 3, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Verse 4, and Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. Take heed that no one deceives you. In other words, Jesus knew that one of the great uh, problems that was coming, one of the great challenges that was coming, one of the great temptations that was going to come upon God's people was going to be deception. Deception that you could not tell if you were not closely connected with truth. As a matter of fact, this warning is not only uttered once by Jesus in Matthew 24, but several times. If you drop down to verse 11, take notice what Jesus says in verse 11, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 11. He says, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. It's not talking about some little deception that is going on here amongst a few. It's talking about a, 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 a huge deception that will cause many to fall. As a matter of fact, if you drop down to verse 23 and 24, look at how Jesus warns that the very elect will fall if they are not connected closely to the truth of the words spoken by Jesus. Take notice of verse 23 and 24. Jesus says, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So the deception would be so widespread, it would be of such a nature that, if possible, it would even deceive the very elect. Now, my friends, how important then is it for us to explore the teachings of truth, to explore the scriptures, to look closely at the words of Jesus and the words of prophecy regarding the times in which we're living? How important is it for us to be prepared so that this deception will not overtake us? Because I believe that many of us as Christians, many of us as followers of Jesus, would consider ourselves to be amongst those elect. And yet, the very elect will fall if they are not carefully and, 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 and uh, very uh, 
studious regarding the words of Jesus and the prophecies that he has foretold. And so what we're going to do tonight, as I said earlier, we're going to look at the teachings of uh, the, the Tower of Babel, the story of the Tower of Babel, and we're going to look at some compar comparisons in prophecy. But before we do that, I want to, uh, so to speak, set the stage here for you. And so I want to go to a few other passages before we turn to our story. I invite you to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. You're in the book of Matthew. If you would just turn on to 2 Corinthians and turn with me to chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13 to 15. We have already seen in the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 that the deception is going to be of such a nature that if possible, the very elect will fall. Now, how could this possibly happen? How could this come to pass? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13, it gives us a little bit of insight into the nature of this deception. We read in verse 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Take notice of the passage here. Take notice that the Bible, the scriptures, tell us that this, this deception is of great proportion. It is of such a nature that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. And this should not really t uh, take us off guard because we know that uh, Satan, before he is pictured as the dragon in scripture and prophecy, he was an angel of light. He was Lucifer, that, that, that grand angel, that beautiful angel that walked into the very presence of God. And here we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we read about Satan transforming himself into an angel of light, transforming himself into the one he originally was, but he now has the falsehood. It's almost like um, a, a sheep, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's another illustration that Jesus uses. Certainly we need to know the truth of God's word. Certainly we need to have spiritual discernment at such a time as this. There are indeed two contrasting pictures regarding the character of Jesus and the character of Satan. The Bible makes this very plain. As a matter of fact, I want to bring you to two passages which I believe really center in on the very character of these two opposites in the great controversy picture. And I believe these two passages will help us to build a, sa a stage, so to speak, for this study. It will help us to understand the larger picture of the Tower of Babel and the story of the Tower of Babel and its typology for us today. And these two, two scriptures, these two passages portray the character of Jesus and they portray the character of Lucifer or Satan, the one that is transforming himself into an angel of light, but all, in reality is the great deceiver. He is the great opponent. Now, let's begin with the character of Lucifer. Turn, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah in the Old Testament. And I said this is going to be a real Bible study, so I hope you have your Bibles with you. We're going to go to quite a number of um, passages this evening together. So here we have the prophet Isaiah portraying before us the character of Lucifer and really explaining to us what was going on in the very heart and mind of this being. 
Isaiah chapter 14, and we're going to pick it up in verse 12. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. The Bible says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, and here we have an insight into the very heart, the emotions, the, the feelings, the thoughts of this being. You have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. We are seeing clearly here an upward motion. Lucifer is not content with the position that he received. He was a creature, but he wanted to be above the Creator. This is the motion that Lucifer is heading in. He wants to be bigger, stronger, mightier. He wants to be above everybody else, including God himself. This is really giving us an insight into the very character of this being. It's interesting that the passage um, in verse 14, the verse in, in, in verse 14, it says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And then it says, I will be like the most high. Lucifer wanted to be like the Most High, but he didn't want to be like God in personality, but he wanted to be God, like God in power. Now, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I think each of us should aspire to be like the Most High, and yet we should aspire the character of God. We want the character of God. Here, Lucifer is not so much interested in the character of God. He's interested in the power of God. He wants the power of God. Now, let's contrast this passage now with a passage found in the book of Philippians as we look at the character of Christ. It's absolutely amazing. I want you to keep your finger here in Isaiah because we're going to come back and we're going to make a little comparison here. So keep your finger in Isaiah and turn to the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians, and turn to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians and the second chapter, and we're going to pick it up here in verse Five, uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. And the Bible says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now think about that for a moment. In Isaiah chapter 14, we had an insight into the heart, the, the mind of Lucifer. And here in Philippians chapter 2, now we're going to have an insight into the very mind of Christ. Now take notice, what, what is the mind of Christ all about? What, are, what is the character of Christ like? Verse 6, it says, Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, Christ was one with the Father. It was not robbery for him to be equal with God. He, he didn't have to rob that position. He already possessed it. But what, what, what did he do? Verse 7, But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. My friends, what we are seeing here in Philippians chapter 2 is not an upward motion, but it's a what, everyone? It's a downward motion. Christ, that was one with God, that was equal with the Father, according to verse 7, he made himself of how much reputation? It says of no reputation. He took, him, he took upon himself the form, not of a king, but the form of a bondservant. He came in the likeness of man. He humbled himself even to the point of death, and not just any death, but the, but the, the, the horrible, terrible death 
of the cross. My friends, when we compare these two passages, Isaiah chapter 14 and Philippians chapter 2, what we have here in a nutshell is the great controversy. Lucifer wanted to go up, 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 up. Lucifer wanted to be above the Most High. He wanted to control. He wanted the, the, the power of God, but not his personality. And Jesus, in contrast, he was willing to come down and to save you and me. He was willing to go all the way to become one of us. And not only to become one of us, but to die on behalf of us. What a powerful, powerful insight the scriptures give about these two characters. Now I want you to take notice of something absolutely amazing. Keep your finger in Philippians chapter 2 and turn back to Isaiah 14. I hope you still had your finger there. And in Isaiah chapter 14, right after this explanation regarding the character of Lucifer, take notice because in this very passage we also have the outcome or the result of this, 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 this ambition of Lucifer. Take notice of verse 15. Verse 15, right after verse 14. Let's read verse 14 as well. In verse 14, it says, Lucifer says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Verse 15, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. So my friends, the ultimate result of self-exaltation is that Lucifer will be humbled. Lucifer will be brought down. Now, turn back to Philippians chapter 2. What is the ultimate result of the condescension of Jesus Christ in behalf of man? Well, let's pick it up in verse 8. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Verse 9, therefore, in other words, because of this, therefore, God also has done what? highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Isn't that powerful? In Isaiah chapter 14 and Philippians chapter 2, we have a, a, a great big picture here of the great controversy. Lucifer wants to go up, 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 and yet ultimately he's going to be brought down. Christ was willing to condescend. He was willing to humiliate himself. He was willing to become a man. He was willing to become one of us. He died in behalf of us. And because of this, ultimately, in this great controversy, when everything is seen and done, he will be exalted. And we know that he right now is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he will be further exalted when he comes again as King of kings and Lord of lords. So we have here in these two passages reveal, revealing the great controversy in a nutshell. Now, let us have a closer look at the picture of the enemy, for we do not want to be ignorant of his devices. We have read in the beginning in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus tells us there's going to be deception. There's going to be rampant deception in the last days. In the context of last day events, there's going to be deception of such a nature that even the very elect will fall. And so we need to have the truth of God's word. We need to stand on a firm foundation. We need to understand the great controversy that is being played out, not just in this universe, but even in our very minds, in our very lives on a daily basis. And so we take that step back and we look at that larger picture and we see the character of Lucifer. We see the character of Christ and we stand here in this world. And it's like that we are this we're like a specter unto the universe, a theater for the universe. As the universe is looking on, we are making decisions who we align ourselves with. 
Are we aligning ourselves with Lucifer? Are we aligning ourselves with Jesus Christ? What kind of mind do we have? Do we have a mind that wants the power but not the personality of God? Or do we have the mind that is willing to humble ourselves so that when Jesus Christ comes back, the reward will be that we will be exalted and sit with him in, in heaven and reign with him during the millennium and inherit the new earth. My friends, the great controversy is being played out before our very eyes. And the decisions that we make on a daily basis will have an impact throughout eternity. Now, I want to look a little closer at the character of Lucifer because we do not want to be ignorant of his devices. And so I invite you to turn back to Isaiah 14. We were just there a moment ago. You might still have your finger there. I didn't, but here I am back in Isaiah chapter 14. And we want to read on just after this explanation of the, um, the ascension of Lucifer and the power that he wanted, the power that he believed was his, and yet he would be brought down, we read in verse 15. But let's continue to read in verse 16, Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 16. Listen to verse 16 and verse 17. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 16. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? This is talking about Lucifer here. The text talks about a man who shook the kingdoms. Who is he? Well, the context refers to Lucifer himself, but it's interesting that Lucifer worked through the kingdoms of this world to achieve his goals. The kingdoms of this world that stood in opposition to God and in opposition to the people of God and the, and, and, um, the nation of God, and he was working out his desires, he is working out his plans. As a matter of fact, when you trace the kingdoms of this world, you can see how Lucifer has been at work in these kingdoms. Just as the verse says here in Isaiah chapter 14, it says, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? Yes, indeed, there is a power behind the kingdoms of this world. As a matter of fact, there is an amazing prophecy in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, you read about this prophecy about a king and a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar that had a dream about a statue, a man, a metal man made of different materials. And those different materials represented the different kingdoms that would come. Some of you might be familiar with this prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. It's interesting that Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 16 talks about a man that would make the earth tremble, who would shake kingdoms. You see, Lucifer was working through these earthly kingdoms, also represented in this image of Daniel chapter 2, to achieve his goals here on earth. There's another prophecy in the book of Daniel, not in chapter 2, but in chapter 7, that also covers some of these earthly kingdoms through which Lucifer was working to achieve his plans. As a matter of fact, I want to invite you to turn there to Daniel chapter 7. You're in the book of Isaiah, and turn with me a little further in your Bible. You have Jeremiah, you have Ezekiel. Turn to the book of Daniel and chapter 7. 
And this is the second main prophecy in the book of Daniel. And really the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, you can parallel it with the prophecy found in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, you read about this metal image, which was made up of uh, an image made up of different metals, which represented the various kingdoms that would come uh, from Babylon, the time of uh, the prophet Daniel and the time of King Nebuchadnezzar, and then leading on to Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. And as you come to Daniel chapter 7, you have another prophecy, which is also lining up these very same kingdoms. But this time in Daniel chapter 7, they're not represented by metals in an image, but they are represented by beasts coming up out of the sea. Very fascinating. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a night vision, and it says in verse 3, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. And the question immediately is, what do these beasts represent? Well, the Bible tells us. We don't even have to go outside of Daniel chapter 7, because in this very chapter, in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 17, The angel says to Daniel, these great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. So very clear from Bible prophecy, a beast represents a kingdom. The kingdom is coming up. The beast is coming up out of the sea. And so in succession, the prophet Daniel sees one beast, second beast, a third beast, a fourth beast coming up out of the sea. But there's a fascinating detail that I want you to note in this chapter, in this prophecy. Daniel chapter 7, and take a look at verse 12. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 12. Look at what it says. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. After Daniel has seen these four beasts... He's seen the first, the second, the third, the fourth. After that, the prophecy continues. The explanation regarding the prophecy continues. And and Daniel hears these words. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, we all know that as you look at these various beasts and you look at these various kingdoms and, and um, the first kingdom that rose there was a lion, uh, a beast, a lion with wings. And, and, and even in the Bible, um, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah pointed to the kingdom of Babylon and described it as a lion. Uh, very, very clear from biblical evidence and also archaeological evidence that Babylon was that nation represented by the lion with the wings, the first beast that came up out of the sea. Then after Babylon, Babylon was conquered by Medo-Persia, and Medo-Persia is represented in Daniel chapter 7 by a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. You can read the description there in Daniel chapter 7. Then a third beast comes on the scene, a leopard with four wings and four heads, and then finally a fourth beast, ferocious beast that cannot be even likened unto anything in the animal kingdom. So these four beasts come up one after the other out of the sea, and then Daniel hears these very important words in verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And logically, Babylon no longer exists today as a nation. Um, Medo-Persia no longer exists. 
Uh, Greece no longer exists. Rome no longer exists. These are the various beasts and the nations they represent. They had their dominion taken away. As a matter of fact, when Medo-Persia conquered Babylon, the dominion of Babylon was taken away. When Greece conquered Medo-Persia, the dominion of Medo-Persia was taken away and so forward. But the verse says, and this is so powerful here, it says they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged. Their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. You take away Babylon's dominion, and yet there's something of Babylon that continues to exist. You take away Medo-Persia, but there's some life force, there's something for which represents Medo-Persia that continues to exist. Same with Greece, same with Rome, and all of this will continue for a season and a time. Now, what does that exactly mean? And you're thinking, how, how does this all connect with the Tower of Babel? Well, just hang in and we'll get there in a moment. But turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. And in Revelation chapter 13, we have the prophet John. And John is really, um, it, it's, it's incredible when you actually make parallels between John and the prophet Daniel. The prophet Daniel writing the Old Testament book of Daniel and the prophet John writing the New Testament book of Revelation. Both of them were in captivity, by the way. Daniel was a captive in Babylon. John was a captive of Rome on the island of Patmos. Both write regarding apocalyptic events, future events. A lot of what they were writing were not necessarily for their time, though they did write for their time, but mainly for the very days in which we are living. These are exciting books. These are incredible books. These are books that we should study because they are talking about the very times in which we are living. And they are twin books. They connect together. Things that you read about in the book of Daniel come back in the book of Revelation. You can really link them together. As a matter of fact, I would argue that you cannot understand properly the book of, of Revelation without the context of the book of Daniel. Now, in the book of Daniel chapter 7, we read about four beasts. A lion with the wings, and then it was followed by a bear raised up on one side and three ribs. Then we had the fourth, uh, the third beast, which was a leopard with four wings and four heads. And then we had the fourth beast, which was a ferocious dragon-like beast. We didn't have time to read it, but you can go back and read Daniel 7, and you'll read about those four beasts coming up out of the sea. Then here in Revelation chapter 13, John brings us back to that very picture and take notice what he says. Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. And we know already that a beast represents a kingdom or a nation or a power. It's coming up out of the sea. And look at the description of the beast that John beholds. It says in verse 1, Having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Verse 2, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Isn't that absolutely fascinating? The very beast that John beholds coming up out of the sea is an amalgamation of the beast that Daniel beheld hundreds of years before. As a matter of fact, when Daniel was in that, had that night vision, he saw a lion with wings, he saw a bear, he saw a leopard, he saw this dragon-like beast, and now these beasts, it's like an amalgamation of one beast now appearing before the disciple John. Absolutely incredible. Now, Daniel looked into the future as he was looking at these kingdoms that would come, and John is basically looking back in time. He's looking back, and yet he's also looking at a power that was rising in, in his very days and would become more and more prominent.
Now, the very beast that John beholds here in Revelation chapter 13 has the characteristics of the kingdoms that are represented in Daniel chapter 7. And that's why Daniel chapter 7 and verse 12, it says, it said their dominion was taken away and yet their lives was what? Was prolonged for a season and a time. Fascinating. When John was alive and beheld, he beheld that beast coming up out of the sea, Babylon was already off the scene. Remember, John lived in the first century. He lived during the reign of Rome. Babylon had his, the dominion of Babylon had been taken away. The dominion of Medo-Persia had been taken away. Greece, the dominion of Greece had been taken away. He was living in the time of Rome. And yet, there was something about those powers, there was something about those kingdoms that continued to exist. Their dominion was taken away, yet their lives prolonged for a season and a time. There were characteristics of Babylon, characteristics of Medo-Persia, characteristics of Greece and characteristics of Rome that are now manifest in this power, in this system that John is beholding. Many biblical scholars, along with all the reformers and particularly um, scholars of, of, of the past, and, and, and you look at the Reformation and each and every reformer pointed to this power here, pointed to this prophecy here in Revelation chapter 13, and they agreed that this was, a, this was picturing, this was an identification of the Roman church, the ecclesiastical power of Rome. Rome, the nation of Rome, gave birth, so to speak, to the Church of Rome. And the Church of Rome is identified as the antichrist power of Bible prophecy. It was a power that masked itself with religion and yet oppressed the very people of God and which attempted to even change the very commandments of God and persecuted during the long dark ages the people of God which remained faithful to sola scriptura, the Bible only. And so this power here in Revelation chapter 13, this antichrist power, this power of Rome, this, this Rome church state power comes up and it has the characteristics of the nations of Daniel chapter 7, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Fascinating. Well, what are the characteristics of these nations? Well, if you go back to Babylon, Babylon was characterized for sun worship. As a matter of fact, you can go all the way back to the Tower of Babel, and that's where we're going to go in just a moment. And the Tower of Babel, from antiquity, that was the very place where they began worshiping the sun. You might remember, and we're going to read this text in a little bit, that the founder of the city of Babylon was a man by the name of Nimrod. And Nimrod was when he died, the people believed that he was incarnated into the sun, and so in order to still worship Nimrod, they began to worship the sun. So all the way back in Babylon, something that characterized Babylon was the worship of sun, also the worship of idols and the worship of ancestors. Things, these are things, just a few things that characterized the nation of Babylon. What about Medo-Persia that followed Babylon? What characterized Medo-Persia? Well, you might remember in Daniel chapter 6, you have this fascinating story, a story that most of us will be familiar with. Daniel the prophet worships his God, and there is a law that is passed in the land that for 30 days you cannot worship anything else except the king, King Darius. Now, if you would worship anything else or anyone else, you would be cast into a den of lions. You will remember the story. 
Now Daniel is cast into the, fire, into the uh, den of lions, and he, and he um, miraculously, through the divine power of God, is protected and survives that trial. And yet what we learn from that story is that Medo-Persia have, had certain, there was a certain characteristic of Medo-Persia, and that was one of the characteristics of Medo-Persia, is that Medo-Persia passed laws that could not be changed. As a matter of fact, you will remember from that story in Daniel chapter 6 that King Darius really didn't want Daniel to be cast into the lion's den. As a matter of fact, Daniel was a close friend of the king, yet he was tricked into passing this degree, decree, and so he had to because the law of the Medes and Persians could not be changed. Interesting, a characteristic. Their dominion was taken away, but their life prolonged for a season and a time. What about Greece? Well, what do we know about Greece? Well, there are some things that we still have today that we can trace back to Greece. We look at the philosophies of Greece. We look at Hellenism. We look at the sports of Greece. The Olympic Games can be traced back to Greece. You look at the pleasure-seeking nation of Greece, many things that characterize this nation. Its dominion was taken away, and yet its life was prolonged for a season and a time. Much of the um, educational world can trace a lot back to Greece, uh, universities and things like that. It's incredible to see how much of these nations, how much characteristics of these nations can still be traced uh, in our world today. Now, what about Rome? Well, Rome was known as this uh, colossal empire that persecuted. It is known as the Iron Empire. The persecution and oppression characterized Rome. Its dominion was taken away. And yet that oppression was going to, is going to reoccur according to Bible prophecy. It's going to come back. The dominion is taken away, but the life is prolonged for a season and a time. It's almost like the devil is experimenting in these kingdoms. It's almost like the devil is trying what he can do in Babylon, in Medo-Persia, in Greece, in Rome. How can I work? How can I use these nations to achieve my goal? And he's trying, and all of this comes together. And in the end of time, according to Bible prophecy, there's going to be a one big showdown. It's going to be a showdown between God's people and between this false system of worship that is opposed to the very commandments of God, that is opposed to the very character of God. My friends, as we read Bible prophecy, we are living in amazing times. And what the Bible is telling us, what the prophecies are showing us, that though these nations have passed off the scenes, the characteristics of these nations has continued to exist. And we are living in the very times that we are seeing a new Tower of Babel being built. It's being built. We have the ancient Tower of Babel in the Old Testament, but now a new tower is being built. Not a physical tower. Not some tower that we can find somewhere in the world, but it's a tower of ideas. It's a tower of philosophies. It's a tower of oppression. It's a tower of characteristics of the nations in the past that are now coming together and being used to really crush the very people of God and the truth of God. And my friends, as Jesus said 2,000 years ago, he says very many are going to be deceived, even the very elect, if they do not study the scriptures, if they, not, uh, if they don't put themselves into the word of God, if we don't have that firm foundation of Jesus Christ and his word and his, word and his prophecies. And so that's why we come together. That's why we study the word so that we can be prepared for the times that are before us. 
As a matter of fact, if you're still there in Revelation chapter 13, it's fascinating to see that this power that is revealed here, this Antichrist power, is really a counterfeit of Jesus. As a matter of fact, you will read about this power here in Revelation chapter 13, that it comes up out of the sea. And then you read how it will reign for 42 months. And then you read how it receives a deadly wound. And then it says in Revelation chapter 13 that the deadly wound will be healed and that all the world will worship this power. It's fascinating. You read it right there in Revelation chapter 13. Now take note that this is a counterfeit of Jesus. You see, Jesus came to this world, and when Jesus began his public ministry, he was baptized. He came up out of the water. And right as he came up out of the water, he started his public ministry for 42 months, for three and a half years. And after those three and a half years, what happened to Jesus? He received a deadly wound on the cross of Calvary. And yet that deadly wound was healed when he rose from the grave on Sunday morning and his disciples worshipped him. You see the picture? And how this counterfeit power of Revelation chapter 13 is repeating that very picture. And yet, in the garb, with the garb of Christianity, it is promoting the falsehood of Lucifer. And how important is it for us then to be students of Scripture? So turn with me now in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17, Revelation chapter 17, and this is going to be the last text before we go to the story of the Tower of Babel, Revelation chapter 17, and here we have a picture of what we call uh, figurative or spiritual Babylon, Revelation chapter 17, and I'm going to read verse 1 to verse 5. Beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot, who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, and listen to the name that is written on her forehead, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. My friends, here in Revelation chapter 17, we read about mystery Babylon, mystery Babylon. It seems that from all these kingdoms that we read about in Daniel chapter 7, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, it seems that Babylon is the one that is chosen to outlast them all. It seems that in the book of Revelation, it is brought back to the very beginning. Lucifer started experimenting with Babel, with Babylon. And then in the very end of this prophetic scene in Revelation chapter 17, we have a, this colossal power that is trying to gain dominion over the world, which is persecuting the very people of God. And again, this power has the name Babylon. A careful study of Revelation chapter 17 will reveal that it's talking about the very same power as Revelation chapter 13. This is none other than the Roman church, the state church power of Rome. Now, Revelation chapter 17 gives a name to this power, to this antichrist power, and that name is Mystery Babylon. 
And for those of you that are Bible students, you will know that a woman in Bible prophecy is representing a church. It is a, it is a typology of a church. As a matter of fact, there are many scriptures that show this. Um, it has always been the purpose of God to show us this amazing and beautiful picture of Christ being the bridegroom and the church of God being the bride. Now, there is a true bride in the book of Revelation, which is revealed in chapter 12, but that's a total uh, different study. And then there is a counterfeit bride of Jesus Christ or a counterfeit church that places itself, that puts itself in the position of the bride of Christ, but in reality is not. And that is the power that we're looking at here in Revelation chapter 17, spiritual Babylon. No wonder that Jesus said that the very elect, possibly the very elect, will be deceived. Because here we have the power of the Antichrist, this system that is characterized by the very characteristics of the nations of the past, and yet it has the garb of Christianity, and it is called Mystery Babylon. My friends, this power is the last tower of Babel. But what about the first tower of Babel? Let's go there. Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. We have the name Babylon in Revelation, but we can trace it back all the way to the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 10, we encounter the story of the tower of Babel, chapter 10 and 11. And in chapter 10, we read the following in verse 8. Genesis chapter 10, beginning in verse 8. It says... Gush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a, hun a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 10, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So we read here in Genesis that the story started, the story of Babylon, the story of Babel, started with a man by the name of Nimrod. By the way, the name Nimrod means we shall rebel. That's what the name Nimrod means. So uh, parents, if you're going to have a son, don't call him Nimrod. We shall rebel. That's what the name means. Now, the Nimrod, it says here that he was the founder of this ancient um, city and he was the founder of this ancient kingdom. It says in verse 10, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. That's verse 9. Verse 10 says, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. The beginning of his kingdom. By the way, very interesting. The first appearance of the word, of the word kingdom in the Bible is right here. It's talking about the kingdom of Babel. Do you know, about the, do you know what the first appearance of the word kingdom is in the New Testament? It's found in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, and it says, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Isn't that amazing? The first appearance of the word kingdom in the Old Testament, talking about Babel. The first appearance of the word kingdom in the New Testament, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. My friends, as we started, we looked at the bigger picture, the character of Lucifer, up, 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 the character of Christ, his willingness to descend to man. Ultimately, Lucifer would be brought down and Christ would be exalted. It's the great controversy. The great controversy is portrayed all through scripture. Here in Genesis, it begins with the building of the Tower of Babel. It begins with Nimrod, which made himself king over this city, which made himself ruler over the city, which oppressed those under him. He wanted to become great, just like Lucifer. 
And so this tower of Babel is built. Look at, look at chapter 11 and verse 4. Look at the description here. Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. What did they want to do? They wanted to make a city. They wanted to make a tower. And then it explains what the motivation was behind the building of this tower. It tells us in verse 4 that they wanted to make a name for themselves. Now, they wanted, in other words, to be seen. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be heard. They wanted self to be on display. A name for themselves. They wanted to go up, up, up. They wanted to be higher and higher and higher. And as they are building this tower, it is really revealing what is going on in their hearts. They want to be higher and higher and higher, exactly like Lucifer. He wanted to go up, up, up. He wanted to make a name for himself. What a contrast with the kingdom of Christ. What a contrast with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven revealed in the Gospels, Christ was willing to come down for the sake of man. Christ was willing to condescend so that we can one day be exalted with him. My friends, these two kingdoms are contra contrary and they are paralleled all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And each of us with our daily decisions are aligning ourselves with either one kingdom or the other. In all the decisions that we make, we are either showing that we belong to the king kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of Lucifer, or the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. We are aligning ourselves with these kingdoms on a daily basis. And we have to think carefully about the decisions we make because what we are doing is we are either preparing to belong to the kingdom of this world or we are preparing to belong to the kingdom of heaven. Well, let's draw a few parallels here with this Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel that was built there in the very beginning. The tower, and I want to look at four parallels, I want to look at four um, ways in which Babel is a, uh, is a monument um, to all succeeding man-made religions. As a matter of fact, that first kingdom of Babel really set the stage for other false religions and pagan religions that followed after it. And I want to look at four characteristics of Babel that have repeated themselves in false religion today. Number one, the tower was a monument to salvation by works. The Tower of Babel was a monument to salvation by works. Let me explain. The people who built that tower were not necessarily, my friends, they were not necessarily atheists. As a matter of fact, their great-great-grandparents had survived the flood. You remember the story of the flood, right? You remember the story of Noah entering into the ark. This was shortly before they commenced the building of the Tower of Babel. As a matter of fact, when, when Noah uh, came on land with his sons, with his family, the Lord said to him, scatter across the earth. Now, what happened in, Revel what happened in Genesis chapter 11 was really in defiance of that command. Because what did they do? Instead of, instead of scattering across the, across the earth, they came together and they built, they started building this huge tower. The tower was a monument to salvation by works. Think about this. Jesus is revealed in scripture as the ladder. He is the ladder between heaven and earth. 
As a matter of fact, if you, if you keep your finger here in Genesis and you turn to John chapter 1, the book of John, the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 1, and take a look at verse 51. John chapter 1 and verse 51. Look at what, look at what we read here. Jesus speaking, and he says, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The angels of God descending and ascending upon who? The Son of Man. In other words, Jesus represents himself in Scripture as the latter, as the way from earth to heaven, okay? He is the way. And how did he provide that way? By first coming down himself. He came down. He condescended to our level. He died on behalf of us. He ascended from the grave. He, uh, he, he ascended to heaven. And he is now the ladder between heaven and earth. Now take notice. The Tower of Babel is in direct um, uh, disobedience to that, very, uh, to that very picture because what it does is it puts man in the focus. It puts man in the center. Man is building the tower. Man is working his way to heaven. The Tower of Babel is a monument to salvation by works. We will build our own way to heaven instead of accepting the ladder, instead of accepting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All false religion has its roots in salvation by works. You think about the various religions in our world today, they have at, at their very root salvation by works. You do this, you do this, you do this, and you have a passport to heaven. You do this and this and this, and each religion has its particular rules and its, and its particular pillars and its particular things that you have to do so that you make your way to heaven. You build your tower to heaven. Jesus, in contrast, the message of the Bible, the message of the kingdom of God is that Jesus is the ladder. Amen? He's the one that provides the way from earth to heaven. Now, we could speak a lot more about that, but let's go to our second characteristic. The tower was not only a monument to salvation by works, but the tower was a monument to mankind's disobedience and defiance of God's word. It was a monument to mankind's disobedience and defiance of God's word. You see, man built that tower while they knew the command of the Lord was to scatter in the earth. As a matter of fact, we, we referred to that earlier, but I want to actually read it together with you. Go to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, and we read about Noah, and he comes out of that ark, um, and we read in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1, listen to what the Bible says. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And if you drop down in the same chapter to verse 15, look at what verse 15 says. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. God gave the promise that a flood would never return. A flood would not happen. It would not come back. He gives the covenant. God says, disperse yourself throughout the earth and it will, there will no longer be any flood. There will not be a flood. 
They rather, though, at the Tower of Babel, they would rather trust in their own judgment. They did not. They defied the very words of God. They worked against the very words of God. As a matter of fact, they thought that they could live in rebellion. And because there was some kind of a fear for a second flood, they thought, well, let's secure ourselves by building this huge, big tower in defiance to the word of God. My friends, religion today, false religion today, is characterized by a defiance and disobedience to the clear words of God, the clear words of truth. Number three, the tower was a monument to human pride. It was a monument to human pride. Remember there in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4, it says, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. And then they add to it, lest we be scattered abroad on the face of the whole earth. God said, scatter abroad. They said, no, 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 let's come together. But maybe there'll come a second flood. Let's live. We want to live as we want to live, but we, we will secure ourselves here. We will build a tower. And that's exactly what they did. The tower was a monument to human pride. They wanted to make a name for themselves. You know, sadly, many churches today are built around man rather than truth. As a matter of fact, the word denomination means to unite under a name. The word denomination means to unite under a name. Here they united under the name Nimrod. My friends, if we are going to be part of the kingdom of God, there's only one name under whom we can unite, and that is Jesus Christ. But sad to say, many religions today, many false religions today, they unite under a name. They unite under a pope. They unite under this name or that name, this authority or human authority, which they put, basically put in the very place of Jesus Christ. Now, when you look at Revelation and the picture that Revelation paints for us about last day events, we read about the fall of Babylon. And I want you to take notice, if you turn with me in your, in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, just as, the, in, just as in the beginning at the Tower of Babel, they gloried in their achievements and in their human pride. So in the end, the modern Babylon or the Babylon that we are facing, the tower that we are facing, also in modern Babylon, there's pride, there is selfishness, there is exaltation of a name, but it's not the name of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it is even masked with the name of Jesus Christ, but it doesn't exalt the truth and character of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 18, take notice of Revelation chapter 18 and verse 7, talking about the fall of, the, of Babylon in the last days, the fall of spiritual or, figuratively, or figurative Babylon of the last days. Revelation chapter 18 and verse 7 says, In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am no widow and I will not see sorrow. So here talking about modern Babylon. Modern Babylon lives luxuriously. Modern Babylon prides herself just like ancient Babylon, just like the scene at the Tower of Babel. It's absolutely amazing to see how the very characteristics of ancient Babylon, the characteristics of the ancient Tower of Babel are, it's like 
transferred these characteristics to the modern Babylon, mystery Babylon in the end of time. And we're seeing the very same things. A system that is focused on salvation by works. A system that is focused on defying the word of God and teaching the commandments of God instead of the words of truth. A system that is focused on human pride and achievement rather than the character of Jesus Christ. We are seeing before us a repetition of history. We are seeing before us the very scenes of the Tower of Babel. This time, it's not a literal tower, but we're seeing it in ideas, we're seeing it in philosophies, we're seeing it in man's teachings that are suppressing the very truth of God's word. And my friends, that tower is getting taller and taller and taller. It's it's getting higher and higher and higher. And yet we have a promise of God's word that that tower will not last. That tower, my friends, is one day going to fall. Just like the tower in ancient, uh, in ancient Babylon fell, so the tower in the last days is going to fall. As a matter of fact, it's falling right now. We have a message in the book of Revelation, and I want you to turn there to Revelation chapter, you're in Revelation chapter 18, go a couple of chapters back to Revelation chapter 14, and in Revelation chapter 14, we have the three angels' messages, the three messages that will be preached in all the world prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's the message of the everlasting gospel. It's the message that the hour of judgment has come. It's the message that we are to worship the creator. It's the message to fear God and give him glory. But it's also a message that Babylon has fallen. Look at verse 8, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8. It says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of her fornication. My friends, prophecy has predicted that Babylon will fall and it's falling right now. It seems to get stronger. It seems to get greater. But in reality, prophecy predicts that the outcome of this is going to be that it will be humbled to the dust. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 18, turn with me there, there's a great call to come out of Babylon at such a time as this. Revelation chapter 18, and I'm going to begin there in verse 1. Listen to what it says. Revelation chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. You see, my friends, the, 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 uh, the text here tells us that it is fallen. And then it goes on to say, it has become the dwelling place of demons, a prison of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive in her plagues. Listen to verse 5, fascinating. For her sins have reached where? Have reached to heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Her sins have reached to heaven. My friends, this tower has become so large, has become so grand that it has reached into heaven. And now the result is what? Babylon has fallen. Just like ancient Tower of Babel, 
God brought confusion, and the people had to scatter, and that tower was never finished. So in the last days, as this colossal system of false worship is rising even before our very eyes, it will come to the point, and it tells us in Revelation chapter 18, that the sins will reach to heaven. There will be a limit, my friends, till here and no longer. God will intervene just as he intervened there at the Tower of Babel in in the book of Genesis. So he will intervene in the end of time. And the call to us today is to come out of Babylon, to come out of confusion, to come out of false religion that defies the words of God, to come out of religion that works by salvation of, man, uh, salvation of works and not the salvation of God. The uh, false religion that wants to make a name for themselves and not exalt the beautiful, glorious name of Jesus. My friends, we are called out of Babylon to become part of the fold of Jesus Christ. The fourth and last monument, uh, the fourth and last characteristic and monument that the ancient Tower of Babel represents is that it is creating a heaven on earth. Ancient Babylon, when you look at the city of Babylon shortly after the Tower of Babel, a city of Babylon was built, and the city of Babylon have characteristics that were very similar to the new Jerusalem city that we are promised to one day inherit in heaven. It's fascinating. As a matter of fact, the ancient city of Babylon, which was at that time, at the time of Daniel, when he wrote his book, was ruled by Nebuchadnezzar. It was such a glorious city. It was such a glorious place that it was really a full-blown counterfeit of God's new Jerusalem described in Revelation and the last two chapters. As a matter of fact, it had great walls. It had a square design. It had hang- Hanging gardens in its center was known for the hanging gardens of Babylon. It was known as the golden city. As a matter of fact, Isaiah refers to it as the golden city. The golden city of Babylon with hanging gardens, huge walls, square. It had a river of Euphrates running right through it. My friends, it is a perfect counterfeit of the New Jerusalem. And what is it doing? It is basically building heaven on earth. It is building this colossal system on earth and yet living in sin. It wants the power of God, but not the character of God. It has the very character of Lucifer. My friends, we are deciding which city we want to dwell in. We are deciding that by our decisions each and every day. Do we want to belong to the city of Babylon with all its glories, but which will one day fall and is falling even right now? Or are we going to make decisions to belong to the heavenly city of New Jerusalem? My friends, all the typology of the Tower of Babel is repeating before our very eyes as we are seeing mystery Babylon become greater and greater and greater. It's a monument of false religion. It's a monument of human pride. It's a monument of human achievement. It's a monument of creating heaven on earth. It's a monument of defiance against the word of God. It's a monument of salvation by works. It has all the characteristics of Lucifer. And my friends, for us to study the word of God, we will be able to stand firm on a thus saith the word. We will be able to grasp the picture of the kingdom of heaven because that's the only kingdom that is going to last. The kingdom of heaven is here right now. We can enter into it by a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we can already now become part of a kingdom that will never end. 
My friends, as we look at the story of Genesis and what happened to the Tower of Babel, we all know the project wasn't finished. God scattered them abroad. He confused their languages. Babel means confusion. It was the confusion of languages. Revelation tells us that the final Babylon, mystery Babylon, figurative Babylon, there will be confusion there as well. There will be confusion causing them to scatter and they will not be able to complete the plan that they had devised in their hearts. God will intervene. As a matter of fact, right after the Tower of Babel, right after they they, they stopped working on that tower, the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 11 talks about the Tower of Babel and how they couldn't complete it because of the languages that were God, you know, he intervened and they they couldn't no longer communicate with each other. They had all these different languages. And right after the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 12, deals with the calling out of Abraham. It's fascinating. Just turn with me there real, real short. Well, this is going to be our last point before we, before we wrap up this study here. Genesis chapter 12, and look at verse 1, 2, and 3. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, 2, and 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and listen to this, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. So Abram is called out, and Abram lived in Ur the Chaldean, which was in the region of Babylon. He is called out of Babylon, and God says, I will make your name great. You see, in the Tower of, at the Tower of Babel, they said, let's make for ourselves a name. Abram is called out, and God makes his name great, because God knows that Abram will exalt the name of God, the character of God. If you exalt the character of God, the name of God, the name of Jesus Christ, then God will be able to exalt you with that name. My friends, it's powerful to see that there's a calling out right after the fall of ancient Babel. And so there's going to be a calling out, according to Revelation chapter 18, when the final Babylon falls and it's falling now and the call is now to come out to come out of her my people and to unite under the bloodstained banner of jesus christ there's one last point that i want to make here if you turn to revelation chapter 17 what is this really really what is ultimately the result of this huge colossal final last tower of babel what is it going to lead to in revelation chapter 17 Revelation chapter 17, it tells about the mystery, the woman arrayed in purple and scarlet, riding on that beast. Mystery Babylon is written upon her forehead. This is this, the false religion, a false church that opposes and defies the very things of God. It says in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 4 and 5, look at the description. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. I want you to remember those two colors. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. As we look at this picture of Babylon in the last days, Mystery Babylon, this huge last tower. On her name is that name, on her forehead is that name, Mystery Babylon the Great. She is arrayed in 
robes and the color of the adornment that she is wearing, the color of the arraignment is purple and scarlet, purple and scarlet. We talked earlier about how this is a counterfeit of God's real movement and God's truth. As a matter of fact, the priests in the Old Testament, they would wear, they would wear purple and scarlet. Those were the colors of the priests, but there was another color that they also would wear. And that was the color blue. The color blue is left out here in Revelation chapter 17. As a matter of fact, the color of blue was a tassel that they would have around their garments of blue. And it was a, for a very specific reason that they were to have that. And the Old Testament tells us in Numbers chapter 15 why they had to have a blue tassel around their garment. In Numbers chapter 15, the Bible tells us in verse 37 the following. It's absolutely incredible. Numbers chapter 15, verse 37 says, Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassel of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and listen very carefully and remember all the commandments of the Lord and to do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Powerful. So what we see here is that that blue tassel was to remind them that God had delivered them and that God had given them his commandments. My friends, this final last Tower of Babel, this final system of false worship is characterized by many things that pertain to Jesus because it's a perfect counterfeit. And, and if possible, the very elect will be deceived. But with a closer look and spiritual discernment through the Holy Spirit and the words of truth of Scripture, we can see differences. We can see clear contrasts with this power and the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. One of those characteristics which might, which we identify is the very fact that this false system of power is not pointing to the commandments of God, but the commandments of man. My friends, the kingdom of heaven is rooted and grounded in God's commandments. The kingdom of heaven is going to be a place where God's commandments is the ultimate authority. We cannot keep those commandments in our own strength, but the word of God promises us, Jesus Christ promises us, that he will write those commandments in our hearts, in our minds. My friends, tonight we can make a decision. We can make a decision to belong to the kingdom of heaven. We can make a decision to build the kingdom of heaven. We are all builders. Either we are building the Tower of Babel or we are building the kingdom of heaven. You can build the kingdom of heaven by accepting Jesus Christ in your life by making him the ladder to heaven, the way to salvation, and by asking him to write his commandments in your heart, in your mind, 
so that you can stand in these last days. There is rampant deception all around us. Babylon is being built before our very eyes. But prophecy reveals that Babylon is fallen and the call is to come out and to join the fold of God. And I pray that that will be your decision tonight. Shall we pray together? Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the words of truth that we find in your scriptures. We thank you for your amazing prophecies. And we thank you for the promises that you have given to each one of us, that we can belong to you, that we can be part of your kingdom, that we can be part of your purpose and plan for our lives. I pray, Lord, that we will turn away from false religion, from confusion that is so rampant around us, and that we will embrace the principles of your eternal kingdom, and that we will make you our Savior, our Lord. And Father, we pray and ask these things in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.com dot watch.